Have you ever been plunged under the surface of your conscious life and found yourself all at sea? Welcome to the Anxious Poets podcast with Adrian Scott, the Anxious Poet. Reworking the territory of the past, exposing that the presence in loss is the impudent sprouting of a new life. There is a certain kind of vow no one can make for you. It is the vow of vulnerability. Poetry, anxiety and vulnerability. This is the Anxious Poets Podcast. Welcome to episode 30 of the Anxious Poets Podcast. I am Adrian Scott. I am the Anxious Poet. And on this episode, I'm really chuffed to welcome a guest, Belden C. Lane. He's Professor Emeritus of Theological Studies, American Religion and the History of Spirituality at St. Louis University in the United States. He's author of Backpacking with the Saints, Wilderness Hiking as a Spiritual Practice, The Solace of Fierce Landscapes, Exploring Desert and Mountain Spirituality and Ravished by Beauty, The Surprising Legacy of Reformed Spirituality. I know Belden because I've worked with him quite a lot uh, when I did men's work in, in the US and over here, he would come over here and help with some of our work here. And he's a good friend and... He is one of those people that, when you hear them speak, has the ring of authenticity. He speaks from his heart, and he's never failed to touch me um, with the way that he is so vulnerable, and yet so robust. I think I'm right in saying he's just turned 80, and he still has that robust vulnerability that is the hallmark of all my encounters with Belden. So I hope you enjoy hearing Belden as much as I do. So here we go, Belden Sea Lane. So Belden, welcome to the Anxious Poets podcast. I'm really, really honoured and pleased that you said you'd do this. Um, and looking forward to a, a conversation about wild places, a, a source of solace and hope. Um, I, I came across you way before I met you. Um, hmm. Someone recommended your book, The Solace of Fierce Landscapes, um, when I was doing a spiritual direction course a long time ago. Hmm. And I read it and was really bowled over by it. Um, and, and as I'd been to New Mexico and the, some of the places that you describe, um, and I, I, there was a particular quote, well, a couple of quotes, one was, fierce landscapes remind us that what we long for and what we fear most are both already within us. Yes. That blew me away. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what, what a thing to say. Um, just that idea that we carry both um, our longings and our fears and somehow a fierce landscape alerts us to that 
awakens that within us. And and the, when I read it in 2004 or whenever it was, the bit I heard was the long for. Mm-hmm. Now I also hear the fear, what yeah. I feel the most. Yeah. Um, and, and the other quote was, only at the periphery of our lives, where we and our understanding of God alike are undone, can we understand bewilderment as occasioning another way of knowing? Ah, that is an amazing uh, statement. Bewilderment as another way of knowing. Um, you you asked me uh, before the podcast to uh, bring along a favorite poem. Okay, yes, it fits perfectly to this. Let's it's do it. from Wendell Berry, one of my favorite people in this country, Kentucky farmer, uh, who writes a poem called Our Real Work. It may be that when we no longer know what to do, we have come to our real work. And that when we no longer know which way to go, we have come to our real journey. The mind that is not baffled is not employed. That's the line I love. The mind that is not baffled is not employed. The impeded stream is the one that sings. Wow. Wendell Berry. Yeah. That's, that's, wow. So that, that, yeah, that baffling of the mind in the face of stark beauty and terror is, is, Mm. For me, always been the what I've sought for and feared most in my life. Now, what what made you seek out fierce landscapes? That's uh, that's interesting. Uh, I I think my spiritual practice of solo backpacking began uh, about the age of forty. Carl Jung would delight in this. Yeah, uh, I had. Uh, been teaching for a few years by then at St. Louis University with the Jesuits. I had made tenure. Uh, so the first half of my life, as it were, uh, was uh, on its ascent, a career begun, an identity to mm. some extent achieved. And so now it was a, there was a need to uh, descend into uh, something deeper. And so the going to the the invitation to go to the the draw, the impulse, the need to go to an exterior wilderness was a way of also exploring the interior wilderness that I knew I had to uh, attend to. You know, Jung said you, the first half of your life, you're building a, a tower and then the second half of it, you're jumping off the damn thing. <laughs> and uh, that's <laughs> that was exactly my experience. So I'm drawn in in the midst of that intensely uh, academic intellectual work of teaching at a university mm. to the wild baffling uh, uh, inexplicability of, of wilderness. Somehow those two, uh, the one needing to balance the other in my life. Yeah. And you're lucky. Well, yeah, lucky in that you have lots of fierce landscapes in the USA. Yes, yes. But- and and there are relatively fierce landscapes very close to home for all of us too. Yeah, <laughs> not, yeah. not just uh, in in an interior sense, 
But uh, even an exterior sense, I, I'm intrigued how often walking the dog at night in the park across the street, uh, there are strange things that uh, come to mind and ear and sight. So, yeah. But um, we do. We do have wonderful. <laughs> and I've been some of them with you. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you're going. You're going soon again. Yeah, we are. We were just talking about it before I came on here uh, uh, about going on a wolf tour in in uh, Um And I've always been struck, powerfully struck, when I've been to the USA. Although it's ostensibly politically and socially a new country, oh yeah, land yeah. is ancient. Yeah, yeah, and gives you that sense of being a very, very small thing in yeah. a very, very, not, not, uh, you know, and a long history of the land and in the grandeur and the size of the land, it has that effect on the psyche of yeah. of making you feel. I, I had, yeah, a very interesting experience in, in Aravaipa, and I might read a poem I've written about mm. Aravaipa which is in Arizona, um, an incredible canyon, um, right off the beaten track that you and I have been to. You've been a lot more than I have. Um, that feeling at night of the Milky Way going over your head mm -hmm. and and just the feeling so minuscule, so small, so insignificant, and yet at the same time thinking, but I'm witnessing this. I'm, I am seeing this. Um, and it filled me up. It made me feel expansive and 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 somehow part of some huge, great story, um, which which is an incredible experience. That those landscapes seem to seem to mediate in a way that nothing else does. And yet, it's so sad that we, uh, the people who live in this land now, have, pay so little attention to it, learn so little from it. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. That's true. Um, in in terms of so, uh, this podcast is to a certain extent about mental health and about anxiety, mm -hmm. depression, and all of those things. And I know you've had your fair share of all of that sort of stuff. Um. What does going into a fierce landscape like you describe in Backpacking with the Saints or in The Great Conversation, what does that do in terms of all of that sort of stuff? Yeah, it brings it all to the fore, that's for <laughs> sure. Uh, I, um, I, I don't know why. I don't know. It's all of this is really beyond words. The mm. sense of what uh, rocks your foundations in uh, a wilderness place, and how the soul welcomes that mm. as much as the mind and body might be terrorized by it. Yeah. Uh, I, I think of one of my earliest experiences of solo backpacking. It was in uh, eastern Wyoming. I was climbing Laramie Peak. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's, uh, I, you know, I, I full of myself. I thought this is going to be a piece of cake. It's only 10,000 feet high. Uh, I was in good shape. I had all the gear I needed. But that night, as I slept on 
near the ridge, uh, lying in my sleeping bag, I was scared shitless. <laughs> I had an uncanny experience of being watched. Wow. Uh, knowing that something wild was out there that I could not see, mm. but I knew was seeing me. And that experience of being seen by what you know is there but cannot see yourself is a uh, terrifying and yet deeply mystical experience. Why, why, is, it mystical? why is it mystical? Uh, all the mystics say that what is most worth longing for, loving, desiring, is what you cannot see ever or cannot even know. There's a possibility of lo loving it, longing for it, being wow. uh, driven to it, but uh, you uh, you will not know it. You will not be able to uh, put words around it. You'll yeah. not be able to see it with your senses. And so in that sense, that uh, unknowing, uh, like uh, Peter Matheson in The Snow yeah. Leopard. Wait, do you uh, want to read this quote? It brings us perfectly to the quote from, so this is your latest book, isn't it? Um, oh, yeah. The, the Great conversation. conversation. Which I absolutely loved. Um, but the, the bit that I went to straight away before I read the whole book was the bit about Yellowstone, because I'm going there. Um, yeah. I also am very drawn to wolves. So this this little paragraph, just if you could just read it for us. Um, yeah, let me set the stage I just a little stage, bit. Yeah, a, a friend and I, he's a cowboy in uh, Dubois, Wyoming, we, uh, I, I was doing a chapter on wolves in this book, and I knew I needed to. One of the things I'm aware of is the need to risk myself that, that to some extent, physically, and I, I don't ever take big chances mm. out in wilderness, but uh, there, there's a sense of risk that's necessary in the spiritual life as well as in the camping, hiking, yeah. wilderness life. And so we were out. Uh, looking for uh, wolves, being led by a wonderful trapper and uh, guide in that area, uh -huh. uh, south of the Tetons and Yellowstone. And uh, the whole weekend was stunning. And I knew we were being seen by wolves over and over again. Yeah. But we never actually saw, only shadows. And uh, that was such an elusive experience. And so uh, as I thought about it uh, in hindsight, this was my conclusion about that experience. Go ahead. Not seeing the wolf was as significant for me as Peter Matheson's Zen-like experience of not seeing the snow leopard <clears throat> in the mountains of Nepal. The wolves were a humbling reminder that what I long for most, I'm never able to see. Embracing what can't be seen, can't even be known, may actually be the first step in renewing the great conversation. We won't learn what the wolf has to teach until we've released our need to spot the beast, to lock him firmly in a niche of visual memory, imagining that having seen, we've also trapped what remains ultimately unknowable. Mm. And I think that's the caution voiced by all of the principal spiritual traditions the great mystery is always finally beyond our seeing and knowing. Yeah. I love that quote, and I love that sense of, of, of being watched and being seen by something ultimately unknowable. As, as I've got older, 
you know, when I first found some sense of faith in my 20s, I thought I knew, you know, I remember becoming a Roman Catholic and saying, you know, I hope I, I believe in what the Catholic Church teaches as the truth. And I somehow had it all in a box, you know, um, <laughs> and then it all blew apart, of course. Um, and now I was with some friends last night who were all around the same age as me. And we were all voicing how much more agnostic we feel. Yeah. Uh, and I don't think in a bad way, because as you get older, you begin to encompass the unknowability of it all. Mm-hmm. And I, although I, it's, it, you know, my experience in wild places in this country and in the US, it, it, there is a, a certain terror to it, a certain awe-inspiring awe fear. Yeah, yeah. But there's also something incredibly comforting. Yeah, yeah. About those experiences. Um, I remember the first time I visited Aravaipa. We, you know, Richard Rohr had invited us out to do a firming. You know, to remember mm-hmm. the, the idea of taking a, a bit beyond the rites of passage, and I'd done my rites of passage at Ghost Ranch, which I'd found. Again, that environment was so powerful. Um, and we I remember getting off the bus. We'd, we'd, we'd been picked up at Phoenix and driven out. And I was becoming more and more aware of just how isolated we were. And we got off the bus and, and Richard handed a few of us English people this little booklet. And it told you everything that might kill you. <laughs> It just went from rattlesnakes to healer monsters to scorpions <laughs> to tarantulas. It just went on and on and on. <laughs> and we don't have anything like that in this country. There is very little that will really hurt you here. Um, and I remember being absolutely terrified. And then, and then speaking to Jim, I was there in sandals and he was there in Kevlar snake boots. Um, <laughs> And thinking, oh, my God, I've got to go out for 24 hours and be in this environment with all these things that might kill me. Um, how how am I going to do it? Um, and, and I remember going down to my tent the first night just at the ranch, and it was pitch black. Mm-hmm. And I thought I could hear, you know, everything waiting to kill me. Um, <laughs> best. Yes. And it, it, it I, I could hear the blood pumping inside my head. Um, and I, it might have been Jim, it might have been you. Someone said to me, you need to think like an animal. You are an animal. You, you know, you, you have in your DNA millennia of being in these environments. Mm-hmm. Somewhere in you knows a lot more how to be there than you think you do. Um, so, so can I, I'll read you the piece that I wrote. Oh, please. The walking is hard, a steepening path ramping up into the canyon. It makes you catch your breath. You have to stop. As the cool desert dark gives way to the browbeating heat, you're already sweating. Looking black back, you glimpse Aravaipa Creek, still steeped in Apache tears where you washed before dawn. The way in flattens out, but you're still hindered by the rockiness of the path, now snaking on ahead, 
as you begin your search for a sentinel place. A space presents itself as the wind and the needle edge of the Suaro cactus speak of the solitude that you bargain away for acquaintance. Mm. You make a camp defined by a rock circle. The chafing song of the cactus wren stirs your anxiety as a soft creature in this place of hardness. At last you become a hidden cache of silence as the dust of the trail blows over your camp and you notice how sharp everything is. The Shola cactus sticks to anything that passes like your unspoken desires, snagging you, propagating. As the dust falls, its glow sinks into the valley. Unsullied night is broken only by the cloud of starry witnesses testifying to the ceremonies that endings demand. You imagine all the creatures that live in this place, lion, snake, scorpion, bear, echoing the unrest of the powers in your sleep. The night cools the day's anvil, and you behold each time you stir the Milky Way over you like another dream. Your sequestered vigil ends as the second dawn brightens the canyon's edge and the countless Suaro regather their ancient shadows, and you find your own waiting for you on the track. Retracing your steps, you find a cactus rib, the inner scaffold of an old giant laying staff-like in your path, and it feels like a call. The rib of this creature in your hand guiding you on the path that frees your heart from its cage. You cut down the arroyo with care as distant rains can flood the sandy gulch trails not made by human feet. Coming back to the ranch, the dust from the canyon billows off you and you remember what happened here. You hear the ground calling for reparation, marking you out, scarring you like this land and you accept there will always be a frontier in your life that you name Aravipa. Hmm. Oh, beautiful. You know, I I think there's a sense in which we are hardwired for nature's wildness. Yeah. Uh, as you say, we've got thousands, uh, two or three million years of experience of uh, being out there in terms of the psyche that is handed down to us in our species. And uh, the, the, the soul needs the wilderness's way of undoing us, yeah. uh, of shocking us, terrifying us, uh, transforming us into what we have to be next. And so I, I'm I'm always driven back to Rainer Maria Rilke and his combination of beauty and terror. That what he he finished his Duino elegies. Uh, I, I think it was the winter of 1922. He was up in the Swiss Alps in some wild and freezing uh, landscape, and he said, "Beauty is nothing but the beginning of terror." which we are barely able to endure. And it amazes us because it serenely disdains to destroy us. Uh, th that wild beauty uh, demands our transformation. It won't let us remain what we are. No. Uh, it says something has to die uh, so that something better can live. Mm. And and that the, the soul longs for that. The rest of us is scared to death of it. But... Uh, <laughs> The soul uh, says, you bring it on. <laughs> yes. Yes. It, I mean, I tried to express it in that piece. It's just that powerful sense 
when everything gets stripped away from you and there's just you and this incredible environment, you, you're faced with all kinds of things you didn't realize were there. Yeah. Um, and that's, it's hard. I mean, I, I, I've never found it easy being in those environments. Like you say about, you know, being in Wyoming and thinking, oh, I can, I've got this, you know, I can do this. There's always something that, that, that will trip you over. <laughs> that, that, that will. And, and I've found that sleeping, especially sleeping out in an environment like that, the dreams that I've had and, and the way mm. it affects me yeah. is, is quite extraordinary. And and it's it's strange how people in the history of spirituality uh, have sought out wild places. I think of those desert fathers and mothers yeah. uh, in the fourth century in Egypt uh, that uh, were drawn to a landscape of emptiness, of uh, raw simplicity, utter silence, uh, because they wanted to practice a spirituality that the land itself could teach. Uh, something that cut to the bone. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, I think another part of what the soul longs for, especially in our very mechanized, settled, comfortable, presumably safe world today, mm -hmm. is that we long to have a sense of resistance and rebellion stirred within us. And so those early desert uh, Christians uh, we're reacting to imperial Roman culture. Yeah. It's consumerism, militarism, uh, mm. a cruel exercise of power. Mm. And they wanted to teach a, a virtue they called apatheia, the right kind of apathy. Yeah. And that's a fierce indifference to unimportant things. Mm. And so there are things you really don't need to give a shit about in uh, our culture today. And they knew that in Roman culture in their day. And so going out to the wild edge is a place to be reminded of what matters and what the rest of society has gotten very wrong. <laughs> the wild edge. I yeah. Mean, I, I like that phrase because where we live here, we're surrounded by edges where the, the geology changes you get these uh, gritstone edges, 30, 40, 50 feet high. They're not huge, but mm. they demarcate a, a, a change in the landscape. Yeah, people, people climb them. They're uh, very popular with climbers. Mm. Uh, but I really like the idea of edges, those those places where you, you, you have to make decisions. Yeah. You have to see who you really are and, and make that transition. Um, and and it you know the the work we've done on men's rights of passage that that it's always in those wild places that that rights of passage took place, um, <clears throat> and you can see why. Yeah, you know you can you can see what that does to the psyche. Um, I remember the the first thing that Richard said when I did my rights of passage, and it always stayed with me, was this is not psychology; it's cosmology. It's, it's to get you uh, realigned with with yourself and with the world around you, the more than human world. Um, and I've often thought about that, you know, that that when I've got lost um, and and not listened to your great quote about bewilderment occasioning another way of knowing. I mean, when I had a breakdown, 
I, I, I was so bewildered. You know, I talk to people like we always do about liminal space, but when it really happened, when I was really in a liminal place, I hated it. I mean, yeah. I would have taken any tablet, anything to get out. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it was only those sort of um, topographical markers that people like you had had imbued me with that made me think, okay, you you do know what this space is. It might be terrifying and you might be utterly bewildered, but you will come out the other end of it. Yeah. That that strange uh idea that there is a solace in fierce landscapes yes. that 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 well some of the the hardest times in my life when i was in deep depression deep uh struggle over uh death especially that has always been a uh a, a incredible thing to deal with uh going out being drawn to the desert uh, especially has been so healing. And just in the last year and a half of my, the last three years of my life really have been very difficult. Our, our son died of cancer at the age of 41 uh, three years ago this October. Mm. And uh, it it took me to a dark place again in my life. And I, after almost a year of grieving and uh, not being able to make it seem much headway, I knew I had to go out to the desert and to Ghost Ranch, that Red Rock Canyon really? rain. So, um, it's such an amazing, that's why Georgia O'Keeffe painted, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. What is it about Red Rock that somehow <laughs> just draws the soul, brings up something uh, terrifying and yet healing? Yeah, uh, and so an experience I had there, and maybe I can tell you a story a little later. Yeah, or whatever, yeah. Uh, was uh, has been one a, a reminder of how uh, God comes to us in the darkest places. Tell, tell me, tell me. Well, I I knew I needed to go to the desert, and I, I knew I needed something like a vision quest. And I uh, gathered uh, four other men that I love in the Illumin work, and we went there to uh, a couple miles south of the ranch uh, there in northern New Mexico, uh, up into these red rock canyons. And there's uh, a, a ridge, kind of circular ridge, and... Across from that ridge is a, a standalone mesa called Orphan Mesa right. uh, because it stands by itself. And so after a day of preparation at the beginning and then another day of preparation at the end of re visiting it all at the end, uh -huh. we spent four days alone, each of us fasting uh, right. in the desert uh, and me up on that ridge looking across the canyon uh, at this towering Orphan Mesa. And I had come there thinking that John, my son, must have been pissed off at God royally. Here, uh, taking him with uh, 
acute myeloid leukemia, one of the most deadly forms of cancer, uh, at the age of 40, leaving a wife and four-year-old daughter, having having gotten his life together after years of addiction and yeah. and, and then going to AA and finding himself again, uh, just living a life that, that touched everyone. And then why in the hell yeah, would cancer have yeah. to take him then? Yeah. And so I, I felt I had to go to that desert terrain to comfort John, if I could, in some way. Well, that very first night, I find myself walking alone in the desert and leaning up against a rock wall and sobbing. And I know that I didn't need to come there to take care of John. <laughs> I needed John to come and take care of me. I was the one that was pissed yeah. at God and yeah. uh, the universe and uh, everything. Poetry, anxiety and vulnerability. This is the Anxious Poets podcast. And there, there are a couple of things that happened uh, on, on those four days that were phenomenal. One, I uh, Mirabai Starr, a wonderful uh, mystical writer, uh, speaks yes. She says that once you've discovered the God of love, you want to fire all the other gods. <laughs> and so the other God that had always been there in the back of my psyche was that God from the fundamentalist Christian background I grew up with as a kid, a punishing God, a God that controlled everything, a, a God that would beat the shit out of you if he choose, chose to. And so I knew one of my things I had to work on there in the wilderness, in the desert, was to get rid of that God once and for all. So I I, I found a huge boulder that I could use as an altar. I, I got a 40-pound red rock wow. uh, that, that would represent this God of vicious uh, anger, and <laughs> then a bundle of beautiful smelling sage that would represent the God of wild uh, desert love that I wow. wanted yeah. more to embrace and at one point i raised this 40 pound rock onto the uh the boulder and it smashed into smithereens thousands of pieces wow. a, a wonderful sense of <laughs> of uh destroying the gods you yeah. know the wrong kind iconoclasm being, yes being able to embrace a god of love there and and subsequently john came to me oh wow this is the one of the most beautiful experiences of my life ever. Oh my goodness. And it came to me two times there. It was the uh, third night. I'm uh, up very late, uh, just paying attention to what's around me. And uh, it's, it's about dawn. And I notice across from me at the red, uh, the uh, Mesa, Orphan Mesa, that the sun coming up the ridge behind me is shining now under the top of that mesa yeah. with its, its bright red orange, just utterly beautiful. It's, it's so the red headed uh, head, the head of my beautiful son who wow. was orphaned. John was adopted. Yeah, yeah. And so my red headed orphan son is coming to me there in the bright light of the sun. I have a keen sense that this is John coming to say, Dad. It is fucking all all right. You don't have to. You don't have to be angry or afraid. I'm good, and you're gonna be good. It's all well. 
and it it, it blew me away. And then right. the last night, you know, on a vision quest, you expect so you're, the biggest thing is going to happen on that last night. Yes, yeah, yeah. And that's when you get the real vision, supposedly. Yeah. yeah. Well, nothing came, which is perfect, <laughs> of course. <laughs> and so. Awesome. Uh, late at night, I finally decide, well, I, I'm just going to stay awake the rest of the night. And and my mind wandered back to that last night in the hospital when John was dying. Mm-hmm. And uh, when he finally took his last breath uh, mm-hmm. peacefully, thanks to the morphine, at three o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. And uh, his wife, Katie, and Patricia, my wife, we all were exhausted. Mm-hmm. They just needed to get home. And so we left. But I always felt guilty. I wanted to stay there. I didn't want the nursing staff to haul away my son on a, some steel yeah. plate and yeah. wheel him into the morgue. I wanted to stay there with his body till dawn at least. Yeah. And so I thought there on the desert ridge looking across at the dark shadow of the mesa there in the middle of the night. I may be maybe 10 months late, but I could still do it. I could hold vigil. I could stay with John through the night. Yeah. And so that yeah. was my intent. And within an hour, a full moon began to rise behind me uh, and, and shining over uh, the ridge onto the top again of the mesa, this time with a uh, pale... Uh, slate gray light that mm-hmm. was pale mm-hmm. but but beautiful too mm-hmm. it was it was the body of the dead body of my son oh, my who, who came to me not only in light in life yeah. in the, the rising yeah. sun but here now in the rising moon yeah. in the dead of night to say with uh julian of norwich all will be well all manner of things will be well gosh and the only way she could say that, she could say it only when she's dying. None yeah. of us can say that authentically until we're facing death square away. Absolutely. Uh, I, I, and so it, th- those were stunning, stunning gifts. That's incredibly moving. Yeah. I, I mean, you couldn't have given a better description to us all of the solace of fierce landscapes than what you've just said. It, it, yeah. It's... I, I, I've just recently come back from the Lake District, uh-huh. um, <clears throat> which is where the Romantic poets lived, Wordsworth, Coleridge. Yeah. And it's a different kind of fierce landscape. It's very green. It's verdant. It, it, but it, it has the same sort of grandeur in a very small space. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And while we were there... We were there with David White, and and I took a group to Grasmere where Wordsworth lived, and you get to go around the poet's house. It's preserved as it was when he lived there. But there's a museum, and and they have different exhibits all the time, and I found this, um, you've just reminded me of it, this sonnet that he wrote. So while he was away, they reckon he walked something like 180,000 miles in his lifetime. Wow. They thought nothing of walking... 40 miles to do something um and and we're in the landscape all the time and that's how he the romantic instinct was was mm. the, this there's a beautiful piece in the prelude where he's he's calling out to an island hooting like an owl and the owls hoot back at him <laughs> and he has this sense of being echoed by the natural world and uh. welcomed into it 
And then he has this sense one night of coming back to his house after a Midsummer Night's party. Bond unknown was given to me that I should be, else sinning greatly, a dedicated spirit. And on I walked mm. in blessedness, which even yet remains. Um, he had this oh, sense God. of being. Uh, I made no vows, but vows were made for me. Bond unknown was given that I should be a dedicated spirit, that I should be mm. a and it, it's, ah. it, it's the same in a very different landscape. It's that similar sort of yeah. uh, being addressed by something greater than yourself, um, especially when you're in extremity. Yeah, He has this sonnet. So he was away from home and his three-year-old child died and his, his, his sister writes to him and tells him, and he can't get home in time for the burial. Um, so he's lost this child. And then he has this experience of, you know, when you've re lost someone really close to you, and then you you see something incredible, and you think, oh, I must tell them. When my mother died, I used to think, oh, I'll ring my mum, and I think, oh, I can't. She's not there anymore in that way. And so he says, surprised by joy, impatient as the wind, I wish to share the transport. Oh, with whom but thee, long buried in the silent tomb. That spot which no vicissitude can find. Love, faithful love, recalled thee to my mind. But how could I forget thee? Through what power, even for the least division of an hour, have I been so beguiled as to be blind to my most grievous loss? That thought's return was the worst pang that sorrow ever bore, save one, one only, when I stood forlorn, knowing my heart's best treasure was no more, that neither present time nor years unborn could to my sight that heavenly face restore. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's just, I, when I read it, I wept. I just Yeah, yes, yes. He, he, he expresses that all those feelings about loss so profoundly and felt and found such solace uh, and hope in the wild world, in the wild landscape. Um, and, and he changed. They changed people's view of the Lake District. Before that, people thought it was a wild, dangerous place that you shouldn't visit. And they, they transformed the, the understanding of people in this country as to how to approach these wild places. Mm. Um, and I feel like that, that's what you... Uh, one of my questions was, how, how do you deal with despair? And you've, you, you've sort of named it, uh, that, that, that you had that instinct to go out into yeah. the, the wild places um, and, and found healing. Yeah, yeah. It's you've always inspired I, I, me with that. I, I think there's a, a Spanish poet, Artigue Gessat, who said that uh, tell me, the importance of place. Hmm. Uh, tell me the place where you live, and I'll tell you who you are. Yeah, uh, he said. But I think he also might have said, "Tell me the place to which you're drawn, and I'll tell you who you are becoming." Ah, and what? to know what is a healing place 
yeah. to know where you need to go. It may scare the dickens out of you, <laughs> but you know it to mm. be what draws you, what you need to become, as it were, mm. is a, a wonderful thing. And I, I, I love you're talking about the Lake District. It does not have to be a dangerous desert. It no. does not have to be a high mountain in the Himalayas. Uh, E.O. Wilson was utterly transformed, transported by ants, you know, and uh, Jane Goodall by chimpanzees. If you find a teacher, and and I've I've found this to be very important in my life, find a teacher in the natural world that you might begin with. That particular teacher can lead you into all the others as well. But you begin small. Yeah. You you begin with a particular yeah. uh, teacher. So my most important teacher really over the last 30 years or more has been grandfather, the cottonwood tree in the park yeah. across the street uh, from my house. Uh, in a I, very I urban area. Do, do you remember, I don't know whether you've told this story. You're a great storyteller. I, used, I learned so much from you when we used to do the rites of passage and you tell the men a story and you you became a storyteller and there's one about is it isaac of krakow who has to I go think... he he has a dream that there's a treasure yeah. on the bridge and he goes to the bridge and he finds out actually the treasure is is always been where he lived at home all along yeah yeah, yeah. and and you know i found that with where i live I, I went on a David White thing to Italy and we went to Tuscany and it was romantic and me and my wife and it was phenomenal and magical. You know, we've had the most extraordinary experiences. And I remember thinking, if this magic exists there, it must exist where I live. I just haven't looked hard enough. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I found it. I found it here in this valley. And, and you know, I've written a whole collection of poems about Sheffield now. And and I found it, but uh, tell me more about the how how the grandfather, how how is that your teacher? Um, well, I met him uh, thirty years ago, nineteen ninety three. Uh, my mother was dying of cancer with Alzheimer's. It was a long. Well, you talk slow... about in the solace of fierce landscapes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, about that same time, uh, grandfather was originally, he's 110 years old this year. Uh, He had two large trunks growing out of the roots Mm -hmm. and uh, lightning struck a fierce storm. And one of those trunks was blown down when they cut it up, took it away. I counted 80 rings in in that one trunk. So I knew the uh, tree was 80 years old at that time. so he, that left him with, he is a male cottonwood tree. I'm not just projecting. <laughs> uh, it, that left him with a 12 foot high, four or five foot wide uh, gaping hole in his side. Wow. And uh, that's what drew me to him. We both were struggling with death. Yeah. And it was a common hurt that drew us to each other. I think that so often today, in what is the hurt that is happening to the planet Mm. uh, at our hand largely Mm. and the hurts that we're feeling in our abandonment and uh, alienation that it is a common hurt that uh, wants to bring us together uh, for healing Mm. 
And that was certainly so of grandfather. So I I've, go over there every night i walk the dog over there every morning we sit every night i stand in the hollow and practice a contemplative prayer uh just letting my mind uh be still and uh sometimes listening to the tree speak and most often just the two of us in silence together mm-hmm. and i've i've fallen in love absolutely i've never fallen in love with a tree before <laughs> I, that's the only way i can describe the relationship we have i just imagine him delighting and seeing me and and i always delight in seeing him even a few years ago i was able to find a, a tree climbing teacher and he climbed up to the near the top of the tree wow. and slept in a hammock overnight Really? And uh, that was delightful. Uh, he was pumping out pollen everywhere. Uh, <laughs> I was crying all night long, night long, half because of allergies, half because of bliss. <laughs> but uh, the, the tree has been an incredible teacher. I, when I was in Aravaipa, one of the things that struck me was somebody told me that each of the arms on those cactus takes something like 60 years to grow. Yeah. So some of those cactuses are like, two three hundred years old yeah and standing next to them you think oh i'm i'm like a, a blink you know my, <laughs> my presence there for what 20 minutes is is like a gnat flying past my eye that i hardly see you know and yet if you befriend something like that over years yeah. you develop that 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 bond and that sense of being taught I really love the idea of of, of of finding a teacher. And my my dogs teach me a lot. But, mm, but yes, yes. But to be apprenticed to something like that, it's a and in the mornings in the mornings when I take a Joy our uh, golden uh, retriever over, and I sit down uh, leaning against a tree, and he lies down between my legs. <laughs> uh, the con- three kinds of consciousness the uh dog the man and the tree Mm -hmm. uh that's an intriguing thing that that that, uh i I keep wanting to explore what is it that's going on between the three of us among us yeah and this uh, this incredibly important understanding of the consciousness of other creatures yes and 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 that how important they are and that we are just part of it we don't have dominion over it. We are. We should learn to be in relationship. Um, as we're coming towards the end, I just want to bring you round to the other thing I loved about the chapter in the Great Conversation. I mean, I love the title for a start. You're great with titles. <laughs> <laughs> the Solace of Fierce Landscapes, Backpacking with the Saints, the Great Conversation, um, was was the Wolf and St Francis. Uh, you brought together everything I've ever loved in my life in that one <laughs> chapter. Yeah. I, I, I've never quite understood why I've always been drawn ever since I read about... I, in fact, I saw a film called Brother, Son, Sister, Moon, which was mm-hmm. a hippie version of St. Francis, yeah. right. when I was 19, and I fell in love. That's the only way I can describe it, with Francis. And in, in my book, A Night Sea Journey, I've got a cycle of poems that talk about him because I realized when I was having my breakdown, he was like my friend that he probably had two major breakdowns in his life. One, when he came back from Perugia, having been in a dungeon for a year 
he had some kind of PTSD. And then when he goes to 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 talk to the Sultan and feels he's failed, mm-hmm. and he comes home and the order is not what he wanted it to be, and he goes to Laverna. And again, I think he has a breakdown, which which he goes to a fierce landscape. Yes. yes. So you make that connection with that lovely story about the wolf of Gubbio um, and Francis's relationship with that wild animal. What, what, what was it that drew you to that? Uh, I, I was fascinated by that story again, uh, as, as I was reading a lot more about wolves and, and getting close to them there in uh, near Yellowstone. Uh, I, I was fascinated by the behavior of wolves within a pack that uh, wolves will be, uh, we, we think of it as being subservient to the, uh, the main uh, head of the pack, the male and then the female. Uh, when they, uh, the wolf will lie down, uh, re- allow its neck to be held out so that it is allowing the uh the the head wolf to uh attack it to kill it if chosen uh to uh kind of keep its tail between its legs and as i read the uh learn more about what this means it's not a matter of of uh, uh miserable subservience yeah. but it's a matter of recognizing that you need the head wolf to be in 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 leadership yeah and uh to know who to look to when there's trouble mm. and so this uh, this uh recognition of authority is is not a subservience as such it's just an, an honoring of what yeah. needs to be honored and that when the wolf you read the account of, of uh, uh francis <laughs> the the wolf behavior coming to him is exactly that same behavior ah of course and and so the yeah. uh the 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 wolf is uh uh recognizing uh francis as the uh head of the pack head of the pack yeah and and i i mean the story i've been to gubbio and, ah. and it's it, you can fit and apparently i mean i, I i'm sure this is true in the legend because it's one of the legends of saint francis it says that when the wolf dies, so the wolf is eating the children of the village and ravaging and causing all sorts of trouble, and they get Francis to come to try and deal with this, and everyone's hiding, and he comes, and the wolf, and they meet, and and that meeting of the of the wolf and and the man is is such a powerful story and legend and archetype, and it speaks to something deep in the human psyche because we. We have projected so much onto wolves. You know, I, I know how, I mean, in Yellowstone, they were hunted to extinction and um, have been reintroduced and completely changed the whole ecosystem. Um, but our projection, you know, the thing we were talking about right at the beginning of our fear, we projected it onto them. And somehow he he changes that. But apparently it said he was buried with great honour, this wolf. And when yes. when they dug up the town square not that long ago, they found a wolf's body. Ah. And, and we went to see where it's now kept. Mm. Ah. So 
so this legend might not be just a legend. <laughs> there may so, be a deep-seated truth in every sense of that word yeah. in that story. Um, and I, I, I just want to read you the last bit of, so I wrote a poem about that meeting. Ah, good. <clears throat> And, and just so this is at the end of the story where the wolf has agreed. And it says, it now lay still and supine, the wolf, at the blistered holy feet, as one by one the townsfolk emerged blinking into a new world, a world where they would feed a wolf in return for safety, and where only an outcast beggar saw the great transaction in which a man called Francis mirrored Christ's great stoop consuming all their darkness and reassembling it into light. Ah, oh, beautiful. I just had this sense that he, they were projecting all their darkness onto the wolf and he stopped the projection and, and said to them, look, you have to befriend this darkness. Um, you have to befriend the thing you feel the most. Um so the real miracle, the real miracle is not that Francis tamed the wolf, but that Francis was able to tame the people. Exactly. Not projecting on the wolf. <laughs> That's what I felt. That's what I really felt. And, and you know, reading when I read your chapter on that, it just I found it incredibly moving. And that's why I feel drawn to go to that place to Yellowstone. Um, yes. It's partly to to encounter a, a world where those creatures actually live and move and, and are naturally occurring again um, and, and have changed the landscape, changed the yeah. ecology. We have so much to learn yeah. from the creatures that frighten us, I suppose. Adrian, I, I want to bless you as you go. I, I want to honour you. You know, this podcast of the anxious poet uh, your uh, great love your willingness to bear your soul to uh, invite people to know where you have been so dark as that has been at times and you're uh, saying hey on the other side uh, yeah. there is hope there is, there is. Well, I, I'm so grateful for you. Well, and I learned those things from people like you. Um, that one of the great things in my life, and I suspect you too, is that you, at times in your life, you meet people who you're ready to meet. You're you're ready to encounter. You're yearning for what they have to offer you. Um, and you know, the times we worked together, I was always just so touched by that very thing. You, I remember, you, I remember saying to you. You know, I've I've got to lead this rite of passage. How do I do it? You know, <laughs> how, how do I talk to these men about these difficult things? You know, and you said, robust vulnerability. That's what you need. You need to be robustly vulnerable. Mm -hmm. uh, and you modeled that to me. And, mm -hmm. and that's partly how I knew how to do it. But, you know, I would say on the first evening, you know, don't trust me because I've got a, a master's or because I've got this or that. Trust me because I've been broken, because, you know, things have happened to me that have bewildered me and have occasioned yeah. a different way of knowing. And, mm -hmm. and you know, we've shared that. And that's why I wanted you to talk on this mm -hmm. podcast, because I, I trust your vulnerability, your willingness to go to places that other people feel scared of. So... Thank you. 
Thank you. Um, I think that's a perfect way to end. Um, it is. And, um, yeah, keep doing it. <laughs> <laughs> and you too. <laughs> I, I hope you come back uh, <laughs> from meeting the wolves. Uh, yeah, so do I. I'm bad. <laughs> yeah. So do I. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So do I. It'll Good. be great. Good. Poetry, anxiety, and vulnerability. This is the Anxious Poets Podcast.